0: If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to look with me in the Book of Romans. We're going to this morning looking at, uh, be looking at chapter 14 and 15 together. I'm going to read chapter 15, the first seven verses, because it's a summary of all that's been said in chapter 14. Um, So I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 15. But if you have your Bibles, it'd be great if you kept them open, because you can see I'm going to refer to a lot of verses in chapter 14 as well. But it's really one big unit. Uh, It's one big passage, one big issue that Paul's dealing with in chapter 14 through 15, verse 7. All right. Romans 15, 1 through 7. Remember, chapters 12 through 16 of Romans are talking about gospel culture. Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans are telling us what the gospel is. 12 through 16 are saying that that gospel produces something in the life of God's people. It gives us a culture by which we live because of what Jesus has done. So we're thinking about gospel culture. It looks like that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. Gospel culture looks like. Um, We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to look like that again today, that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just another example of that. So listen to this, Romans 15, the first seven verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage together that you would continue to further our understanding of the good news of the gospel. Would you help us to understand more about Jesus through this text? Would you help us understand more of ourselves? Would you help us to know because of what Christ has done, how we should be living together, how we can live together, what you expect from us as a body of Christ, what we, how we should live. So help us, Lord. We pray this in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So this morning, as we look at chapter 14 and 15, we're gonna be thinking about and answering one question. Here's the question. How do we do church when each of us are in a different place on the journey to maturity? How in the world are we supposed to live together? How do we do church when each of us or in a different place in the journey toward maturity? My guess is you think about that question all the time in different forms. How do I relate to my spouse when I'm a different, in a different place than they are? How do I think about my career in light of my friends and where they are? You think about this all the time. How do I relate to people when it seems like they're further along or behind where I am? Whatever it is, this is something we have to think about all the time. Now, I wanna mention this to you because in answering this question, I hope that it'll get you thinking about your own life in really deep ways. As a matter of fact, this is not an easy passage of scripture. If you go back and read chapter 14 and 15, you will discover that it's kinda complicated. So, it means that I actually may preach this sermon next week again. I might do it. I'm really thinking about it. Because it's not easy to get a hold of what Paul's saying, but I'm going to do my best. So here's a story for you. Chad and I um, both worked with RUF. It's our denominational campus ministry. And one of the unique features of RUF is that every year, two weeks out of the year, all the campus ministers are given training. Two weeks a year. It's amazing. Really amazing. Because what what RUF knows is that guys that come out of seminary or even have been in the church for a while need is how do I live out everything I've learned in seminary? Because most of us spend a lot of time reading books and writing papers. Some of us engage with people, but in seminary, you're just doing a lot of work. So how in the world do we take what we learn in seminary and live it out? So two weeks every year, All our UF campus ministers get training. Chad and I went to our first training together. That's where we met. And the first week of training, it was awesome, by the way. It was really good. Um, Every teacher that we had for the whole week, whoever was teaching the seminars we were doing, would tell us, y'all don't get this. Y'all aren't going to get this. You're not going to understand what I'm saying. You're not going to get it. And they said that to us over 20 times in a week. To the point where I was a little bit frustrated and excited. I was curious, but I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. The point is that what RUF was trying to communicate to us is this. When you're living out what you learn... It's not a set of principles that you master. It's actually the reverse. You have to be mastered by what you know. Get the difference? In other words, we're not gonna get it because it has to get us over and over and over. It's a counterintuitive way of thinking. Because most of us think, well, if I learn how to do something, I can learn the principles and then I can just duplicate it. And our training was, no, if you want to share the gospel, live out the gospel, teach the gospel, you have to be receiving it all the time in order for you to change. So my point is this, like Chad and I, looking at this passage, you might not get it. We might not get it because what's happening in this passage is that it's trying to get you. Do you get it? It's trying to make you think about what is actually at work in you rather than hearing all this teaching and think I just need to go do this. So I want to tell you on the front end because I don't want any of you to get mad at me. It's not that you lack intelligence in any way, shape, or form. It's just counterintuitive. So let's jump into the text. And let's think about this question How do we do church when each of us are in a different place in the journey toward maturity? How do we live together? Well, here's the first stop on our journey first stop of two. The first stop on our journey in answering that question is this we're all in different places. I want to show you that from the text. We're all in different places. Remember that the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the churches or church in Rome around the year 58, 57, 58. And remember that the emperor of Rome decided to expel all Jewish people. So he actually kicked out Jews from Rome for five years. So this church had gotten started It was made up of non-Jews and Jewish people. They got off the ground. They were meeting together for worship. They were caring for one another. And then all of a sudden, all these Jewish people had to leave and get out of Rome for five years. And then after five years, they came back to the church. And what do you think might happen during that time? Things had changed, right? They came back after being gone for five years and there were these tensions between them. There were tensions between those who have Jewish background and those who have non-Jewish background. And because of those tensions it created differences. Did you notice what they were? You probably didn't because I didn't read chapter 14. But here were the differences. They, were, they thought differently about drink. Chapter 14 verse 21. They thought differently about days, verse 5 of chapter 14, and they thought differently about food, verse 2 and 4 and 20 of chapter 14. So there was these tensions. The Jewish people predominantly were not sure as to whether or not we should consume alcohol. They were concerned about that. That's what it says in the text anyway. There were also tensions about food because growing up Jewish and having oh, I don't know, a few thousand years of laws that said you can only eat certain things. They were trying to figure out what to do with that. So they would refrain from eating things and thought you shouldn't eat this meat, Maybe you should just be vegetarian. It had nothing to do with a diet, okay? It had everything to do in their history of being a people who were set apart for God. So they were wrestling through what to do with that. And the Gentiles predominantly were like, man, you can, you can drink whatever you want. You can eat eat whatever you want. And the Jews were also wrestling with these days. Because you see, before Christ came, God had laid out this calendar of events. And God's people had to observe certain days. There was spiritual significance attached to feasts and traveling to Jerusalem. And so they loved to highlight certain days. And as they were living together with Gentiles, people that didn't have their background, there was tension. And they were trying to figure out how in the world do we do church? When I'm over here on this and you're over there, what do we do? Well, you might guess it. There were two groups of people. I've told you they were Jews and non-Jews, but here's how the Bible describes them. Two groups of people, weak and strong. Ouch. Ouch right? There was a group that was weak and there was a group that was strong. By the way, this had nothing to do with uh, whether or not they were following Christ. Both groups were following Christ. This is not the same situation that Paul writes about in another book in the New Testament. He's talking to people, Jews and non-Jews who follow Jesus. And he's saying some of you are weak and some of you are strong. And what he means by that is this, it's not that those who were weak had a weaker grip on Jesus, and those who were strong had a stronger grip on Jesus. What the difference was, is this, The, the weaker had not worked out all of the implications of the gospel So in their history and in their past, they were still associating certain spiritual values to things that God says has very little spiritual value. They were thinking about their past and they were used to these certain things that they would put spiritual value on and then they would look at other people and say, well, you should be doing this too. In other words, if you've heard this word before, there was kind of like a legalistic spirit that still had a grip on them. They were still thinking, I need to do this. I don't need to drink that. I need to follow this day. I need to attach spiritual significance to this day because it made them feel spiritually okay. It made them feel good spiritually. They thought that they were honoring God by not eating certain foods, not drinking certain things, and exalting certain days with spiritual significance. So they were thinking about their lives, wanting to honor God, and they were thinking, if I do this and don't do that, God will continue to love me, and I can feel good about myself spiritually. You see, they had created unnecessary rules, and they expected non-essential things to be followed and adhered to. They expected others to do what they did because they thought these things were vital for Christian maturity. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ and be a mature follower of Christ. You drink this, you don't eat that, and you follow this day and attach spiritual significance to it. And those that were strong in the faith, again, it had nothing to do with how tightly they were holding on to Jesus. What it meant when it says that they're strong is this. They were just further along in the process of working out the implications of the gospel. They had just thought more about Jesus' death and resurrection and worked that out further than those who were weak. So, What are they supposed to do? How in the world can they do church when you got these differences and tensions? Well, let me tell you what their responsibilities were to each other. If you got a Bible, look at this because I want to list these for you. So in other words, if you're here this morning and you may find yourself in the weaker category or the stronger category, just know this is what you're supposed to be thinking about regarding how you relate to one another. Look at um, verse one. Of chapter 14. You're supposed to welcome them. You're supposed to welcome each other. Look at verse 3 of chapter 14. Those of you that are strong, you're not supposed to despise the weak. Are you convinced of something theologically? And it becomes real easy for you to look at those that maybe don't have the same position as you and think to yourself, well, they're just weak. They're not as smart as I am. You ever feel a temptation toward that? Those that are strong always have a temptation to look down on other people. And verse three also addresses those that are weaker and says, look, you all have a responsibility to not judge the strong. Meaning, if you're weaker in the faith and you're looking at following Jesus through the lens of these things that you are not essential but you think are really important spiritually, you're gonna look at those that don't follow what you do and think to yourself, ah, they're missing it. They're wrong. They shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be drinking that. They should be honoring this day. And you're gonna have a tendency to look at them and judge them and say, well, they're really not following Jesus like they should be. So whereas one group would look down on another, the other group would just judge all the time Get in that cycle of just looking at what someone does and, well, that's not good, that's not right. You ever find yourself finding it super easy to judge other people in accordance with your expectations, whether you've communicated those or not? This is a responsibility. Shouldn't judge one another. We Shouldn't look down on one another. Look at what verse four and 11 and 12 say. The reason we shouldn't judge is because everyone, both weak and strong, will appear before God. All of us are going to give an account to God. Whether we're weak on some things and strong on others, we all will, be, we all will have to give an account before God. Verse 5 of chapter four, 14, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 5. Here's another responsibility. We all need to be fully convinced in our own minds, which means no matter where you stand on these non-essential issues, you need to be fully persuaded in your mind, which is really, really hard because oftentimes people think that they have studied the scripture and what the scripture says about this or that. So it's really hard for them to go back and study again because in their own mind, they think they already have. But the responsibility is to continue to search. Search. Here's another one. Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. Don't be a stumbling block to the other. Don't be a stumbling block. Now, some have interpreted this, at least in your experience. I bet that you've been in situations in which people have used this phrase, don't be a stumbling block, to communicate this. Don't do anything that offends anybody. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. But my hunch is you've probably been in situations. Where that phrase, don't don't cause anybody to stumble, just means don't ever offend anybody. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you can cause someone to lose their salvation. You don't have that kind of power. You don't have the power to de Christianize someone. You can't do it. Now, you can be a hindrance to their growth. You can can stop them from making as much progress as they would. That's true. That makes sense in normal life, right? Anybody had a horrible boss that didn't utilize your gifts? Come on. They were stopping your progress. This is normal stuff. We shouldn't be a stumbling block means we shouldn't stand in the way of people growing in maturity. We should be encouraging to them. It means we shouldn't stop the progress of God's church because of petty differences, things that are non-essential. Here's another one. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. Here's another responsibility. Prioritize the kingdom of God. The text says the, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is a prioritization of the kingdom of God. We have to think about whatever our views are of certain things in light of something that is more significant, which is the kingdom. The kingdom of God and what He is doing in the world. Here's a couple more. Here's another responsibility. Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. That we are supposed to be peaceful toward one another and mutually build each other up. And of course, verse 23 at the, uh, the very last verse of chapter 14 says this. Make sure whatever you do is in faith. Meaning the weaker brother should carry out his life in faith. The stronger brother should make every decision in faith. So that both are living by faith, even if they disagree. Well, Let's go to our second stop in the journey. Well, how are we supposed to deal with these differences? What are we actually supposed to do? If those are our responsibilities, what are we supposed to really do? Well, remember, the gospel creates a culture to deal with differences. Have you ever thought about how our culture deals with differences? You ever thought about how, how your workplace or the world in which you live in deals with differences? Here, here's some things I jotted down this week thinking about this. How does the culture that Dave lives in and is a part of deal with differences? Here's one they just create new policies. I mean, sometimes, doesn't that just get old to you? That you never actually have to have the responsibility of talking to someone. You just create a new policy to deal with it. We're becoming less and less relational. But sometimes that's how we deal with differences. Just create a new policy and then hide behind that policy. It's hard, right? Here's another way. Um, Only one person is right. Experience that in how we deal with differences? Well, one of you is right, one of you is wrong. Here's another way. You're both right. Everybody's right. Nobody's wrong, everybody's right. Well, guess what? That didn't get us very far does it? One of Dabney's soccer coaches when she was growing up, oh boy, I'm going to try not to launch on this. He, one of his rules for his team was this, you're never wrong. And you know what that led to in her soccer team? They took the ball and they went the wrong way. And instead of telling them, that's the wrong way. It was, you know, I would prefer that you would go back this way and go this way. No, how could you do that when you're playing a game? It made no sense. And Dabney loved it, just like most of us would. Because we don't like being wrong, right? Meanwhile, I am just seething on the sidelines because every game they lost like 45 to 2. And the two goals that were scored were by the other team. It was horrific. You know what it's like to live in a world where people say, everyone's right. It's ludicrous. Ludicrous. It's crazy. That's why I feel like we've actually made some progress in our culture, at least in this sense. Now it's not so much everybody's right, but it's the opinion that has the most power that comes with it that's right now. That's at, least a, that's at least a movement away from a lazy way of approaching life of just, well, everybody's right. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just telling you what I see. Don't you? The opinion that matters most is whatever has the most power associated with it. Dangerous as well. Here's something else. Compromise. We live in a culture sometimes where there's some compromise. There may be, that may be a way that, that you deal with problems in your marriage or with your friends that you have to sit down and kind of compromise something. I don't know. I think that still exists sometimes. Of course, there's always cancel, right? If someone's wrong and you don't like them, just cancel them. Well, here's how most people operate. Maybe that got the juices flowing in your mind, thinking about how you are trying to live in an environment in which people are telling you this is how you deal with differences. But here's how we almost all operate. And I'm not saying this is good either. We live in a culture that encourages us to say this. I'll let you have your opinion, but your opinion will not affect me or the way that I want to live. Resonate with you? See that all over the place. You can have your opinion, but your opinion is not gonna affect me, and your opinion is not gonna affect how I wanna live. We live in a very individualistic time, don't we? You see, but the gospel creates something different. The gospel creates something different. As a matter of fact, look at verse 14 and verse 20. How do we deal with this difference? How do we deal with these tensions between weaker and stronger people in their faith? How do we deal with that? Well, guess what? There is a right answer. And it's that Jesus has declared all foods clean so you can eat whatever you want. It's actually that you can drink whatever you want, alcoholic or not. It's actually that There are no more special days that you attach spiritual significance to because the resurrection has happened. In the Old Testament, God's people were working six days in order to get to the point where they could rest one. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you know what happened? We start with rest, it's the first day of the week. We start with rest so we can rest in God and who he is and then move into our work the other six days, which is exactly how you were created. Do you realize that when God made Adam and Eve, that their first day with God was the day of rest? And when rebellion entered the world, it was nothing but frustration and hardship And you were all working six and hopefully preparing along the way for the Sabbath rest. But now that Christ has come, you get to rest on the first day of the week. And from that rest and from being re-energized with who God is, you get to labor six. It's beautiful. You see, the gospel creates something different And there is a right answer, but it's not as though the right answer is enough. It's not just that Paul says, you know what, the difference between the weak and the strong is that the strong is right, because they were. There's a sense in which that didn't even matter, because God was trying to get them to learn how to live together. Even when one group was right and the other group wasn't right? He didn't so much care about the answer as he did press them and press us on how we relate. You see, a summary of what we're supposed to do is that idea of welcome. And then in chapter 15, verse one, we bear with the failings of the weak. We bear with, we bear with. That means this, you need to make space in your life for people who differ with you. You need to let them in. It means that when you have issues in your marriage and your closest friendships, you gotta let them enter in. You gotta enter into their life. You actually gotta welcome people into your life that may not agree with you on every little thing because you're supposed to welcome them and bear with. It doesn't say, oh, well, just put up with them, those annoying people. It doesn't say put up with them. It doesn't say criticize them. Bearing with has the idea of adjusting your life. Make adjustments in your life. Don't adopt wrong beliefs, but get close enough to people to understand their position. Get close enough to people so that when there's disagreement, you can hear what they're saying and you can understand the strength of their argument. It means that you can have relations with people that you may not agree with. It means that you have to be willing to be misunderstood. It means that you don't have to correct everything in everyone. You can just bear with. It's not our job to walk around and tell everybody how they're wrong. It means that you can, in bearing with one another, you can do everything you can to accept someone. You can do everything you can to agree with them, but you just can't adopt a wrong view. It means that you're supposed to live with people as much as you can and disagree as much as you can because of what is most true. Not things that are non-essential, but what is most important and most true, what we should prioritize. In other words, in our lives and following Jesus, there are things that are of greater importance and priority, like the kingdom. Not petty little differences about what we eat or drink or what days that we follow or don't. You see, the gospel also enables us to experience all of this. You see, we will never be able to do this. We will never be able to bear with one another and welcome people until we realize that this is how you experience Jesus. This is what he does to his people. This is how he comes to us. Do you see how, that, how, that that is how Paul is thinking? Look at what he says in verse three of chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself, but the reproaches of the people fell on him. Paul is talking about differences and bearing with one another and he's saying, hey, people of God, followers of Christ, Think about how Christ related to you. Those of you that are strong, think about how Christ related to you. Those of you that are weak, think about how Christ relates to you. Do you ever think about Christ leaving heaven? And in leaving heaven, what he was doing was coming to us. He was adjusting his existence for people like you and me? You ever think about that? That he came to pursue and to welcome. Do you ever think back on all of his interactions that we have in the Bible? You ever think about how he interacted with people? He would get close to people that he didn't agree with. He would talk about differences. I think he was willing to be misunderstood, don't you? He wasn't walking around all the time correcting everybody, was he? He was asking questions and listening. Do you ever think about the cross? As a time when Jesus is actually telling us what is true? Hey, you've rebelled against God and it requires this sacrifice. The cross is a declaration that Jesus says that We have rebelled against God. He's telling us that we were wrong. He's telling us that we're selfish. He's telling us that we like to become our own savior. And he's saying, but I'm paying the penalty for you. Even to the point, we're looking down from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You ever have the privilege and opportunity in your life to say that? Maybe not out loud because that could come across not in the right way. Have you ever thought about that? The way you parent? The way you relate to people? Because that's how God is related to you. Don't even know what you're doing. You ever thought about the empty tomb? The Christ gets out of the tomb because he's blown a hole in the back of death and he gets out of the tomb to bring new life to you and me? To promise us that death will be defeated? To promise us that because of resurrection, the new heaven, the new earth is coming? Do you see that this is what Christ has done for you? And how he still relates to you? So, how do we do church? When each of us are in different places in the journey toward maturity, well, we continue to remember how Christ relates to us. And that gives us the power to change and relate to others. And, friends, That's what brings us to the table. Would you pray with me before we do that? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us new life. Thank you that you challenge us to think about our own lives. And oftentimes, Lord, we we never like to think that we're weak. We always like to think of ourselves as strong. But you are working the gospel into us. You're creating a type of people that are able to relate to one another even when there are differences. Not so much because one is right, because we're figuring out how to love one another the way you have loved us. So grant us grace to continue to look to you and to trust you and to think often of how you've adjusted your own life and changed. We're willing to be misunderstood, willing to call us out on what's true, even defeated death so that we might have victory forever. We pray this with eternal thanks. Amen.